0: Welcome to your path to nonprofit leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell. And in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. If you need someone for your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation with Catherine Lambert, who returns to the path after being part of one of the earliest episodes. She was truly a pioneer, episode number 17. Uh, She was a wonderful guest then. She will indeed inform you even more this time. Uh, Her previous episode was focused on... How to become a senior leader as a manager in a nonprofit organization, moving up the ladder, so to speak. And, of course, that episode remains one of our most popular all time. Uh, And you're in for another fantastic conversation full of specific advice around areas that all leaders, and I bet you are thinking about some of these questions as well. How do we lead our teams in a post-pandemic environment? What's changed, if anything? And I bet some of these questions are familiar to you, and perhaps you're wrestling with them right now. What about your colleagues or teammates who want to remain in a hybrid work environment? What do you do? What about virtual board meetings? Has your board adapted their approach and their engagement as a result of the technology we all had to embrace during the pandemic? Uh, What about hiring practices and your outreach and recruitment? Has that changed? What, if anything, will you do differently there? And, of course, donor relations. How has the advent of this new technology affected that critical relationship-building aspect as it relates to fundraising? Of course, the good news is that Catherine has specific advice and feedback on all these questions, what she has done, what she has learned, and she's going to share all of that with you. Once again, lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 195. And remember, that will allow you to get access to any of the resources Catherine and I discuss. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you will find these resources and links. And, of course, more information on Catherine and the great work she's doing as CEO and chapter leader for Alzheimer's Association chapters in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Katherine Lambert. Katherine, thank you for joining me again on The Path.
1: Thank you, Pat, and I appreciate the invitation.
0: Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. I cannot believe that it has been nearly three years since you appeared on this podcast. A fantastic episode, by the way, which we will link up. Number 17, where you talked about moving from manager to... The senior leader in the nonprofit sector. Very relevant, still very relevant. But of course, January 2020 was just at the advent of a life-changing event for all of us. And so I'm glad to revisit leadership with you post-pandemic. Uh, and so let me start with that. As we reflect on our conversation almost three years ago, what do you think is the biggest change that has occurred for many nonprofit leaders post-pandemic?
1: I, what we didn't know three years ago when we talked was about to happen. I think the biggest change that I've seen is that you really are having to constantly adapt. And, and you know, let's be honest, that was true prior to the pandemic, but we're really having to look at doing things differently. The same things didn't work when we all went home in March of 2020. Um, those things don't work today, but we're not even back to where we were three years ago when we did talk. So it's kind of reinventing ourselves yet again. And that's hard.
0: I agree. And we'll talk about some of the impact of leaders and their teams and the, of course, burnout and other issues we're facing. I, I wonder, Catherine, is there a silver lining in that? Do you feel like organizations and their leaders were, were more adaptable because we had to be? Or is that still not necessarily falling into place?
1: Oh, abs- I think there are some great things that have come out of this. I think we have um, really started to look at what's most important to us, both professionally and personally, and maybe make some different choices about where we spend time. Um, but I also think people have embraced technology in ways that we didn't even know we could That that has made, whether it's donor relations, staff relations, events, you know, We're just doing things differently. And I think that's a good thing. I think it expedited that because we had to, and we are very adaptable.
0: I agree. And I know you've got some wonderful advice and words of wisdom as we unpack several of the areas to nonprofit leadership and how they have been impacted since the pandemic, and hopefully for the better. And that's where you can help illustrate. And, and, you'll illustrate, I know, giving examples from the wonderful work you're doing through the Alzheimer's Association. For those listeners who don't know about the good work of the Alzheimer's Association, talk about what it is and what you're doing there.
1: So the Alzheimer's Association is first about research and making sure that that research is happening to ultimately have effective treatments and one day a cure for Alzheimer's. Um, And until that day, and while we're on that research journey, really providing that care and support to those that are already on this journey from physician education and uh, patient education how do you have difficult conversations to what should you be looking for? What's normal aging versus um, Alzheimer's or another dementia that is not normal aging? And then for those already with a diagnosis, um, effective communications, dealing with difficult behaviors, we do all of that through education classes and our twenty-four hour a day helpline um, to help people along the journey.
0: Catherine, how have you changed? When you and I spoke, you know, you were still relatively early last time. Um, But you have been there almost nine years, which, by the way, congratulations, as you and I both know, the turnover rate in our sector uh, is rapid, especially for fundraisers. And I would dare say leaders themselves are faced with turnover issues. But how have you changed in the almost nine years since you've arrived as a CEO for the Alzheimer's Association?
1: I think nothing is as humbling um, as the last three years have been, but I, I think the biggest Thing and how I'm different is, I think when I came into this role, uh, which was my first as as a CEO in that lead position, I think I thought I had to have all the answers, and I now realize how incredibly naive and stupid that was, and that one I will never um, have all the right answers. But I think particularly over the last three years, and I'm going to even highlight the last couple of months as we kind of seem to be in a stable new normal. Um, really leaning into the wisdom and ideas of all of those around um, and engaging that not at a surface level, but very deeply um, and and incorporating different ideas and perspectives into my leadership. I think that's become far more intentional for me um, than certainly it was eight years ago.
0: Yeah, you're a great example of that, and not that you weren't uh, even in the early days of your leadership specifically, have you found ways to do that? Does it change like the, the design of meetings or the fact that you're just incorporating your colleagues and their kind of wisdom and experience into your own thinking more?
1: So, you know, some of it is just being very intentional and um, when I think I have the right answer, which sometimes is true and sometimes not. Um, not putting that out there and say you know please react to this but rather asking a lot of open-ended questions um because even if what is reflected back to me was what my original idea is I've now empowered other people to believe it was their idea which is which is huge <laughs> right. um but often there is a tweak on it um even if it's the same basic idea there's something better about how someone else has has seen it and viewed it so I do a very intentional conversation with different leadership groups where i know what some of their um, concerns are but we we talk about like here's what the issue i see is in fact we did it on this exact topic that we're going to discuss about how do we get folks engaged in this post-pandemic world um i don't know what the answer is which was the truth i had some ideas and i had some but rather than making it tactics really having with my leadership team a strategic conversation um, where we could flesh that out, and I think the outcome was far better than if I had said, "We need to get people engaged and hear some thoughts. I have, please react to it." I've already narrowed their thinking before we've even started the conversation.
0: You started with kind of an open-ended discussion, didn't you? Before That's exactly right revealing, yeah. It was, of course, very well done. And well, and I guess you've got four distinct. Uh, I guess, programmatic and tactical areas you're going to advise our listeners on in terms of how they lead through different dynamics of their leadership. Uh, But let me ask you this, uh, from an Alzheimer's Association perspective, how programmatically did you all have to adapt? I'm sure you did like everyone else, given the lack of, uh, of interaction all organizations face. Were there any particular programmatic changes you had to make?
1: I think the very the very beginning, I would say 99.9% of our programs were delivered in person. And right. um, you know, after we got through those first few weeks where, you know, I at least naively thought it was going to be about a two-week break from going into the <laughs> office. Um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of our partners obviously were dealing with incredibly critical um issues in their own environments. And so we, we kind of had a pause for a few weeks, which gave us time to figure out a game plan, but we shifted within three weeks to a completely virtual program delivery. Uh, option and we're serving similar numbers um, of individuals through those online programs. So that was kind of part one of, of that evolution. Um, and then really got to a place as we started, you know, to be able to safely come together again. Some communities and areas really wanted to do that, and others said, you know, there's great value in having things. Um, you know, companies, for example, we we are a hybrid workplace. We need to have our programs offered to our employees that way. And we're able to do that as well. So keeping the best of, but um, really meeting people where they want to be. So we shifted programs. Um, certainly some of our events, uh, our first walk season of, of 2020 was walk everywhere, where you know people were in their neighborhoods and 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 doing things with their, their close friends and families. And we did our promise garden, kind of our signature part. Um, we had a planted promise garden people could visit. And, you know, now we're back in person, but some of our um, teams really liked where they walked in 2020. Right, and right. They're able to make it work in their schedules that it's not about only being in that one place at that one time that it can be bigger than that.
0: Yeah. I love that. And, and creative, Use of you and your team, uh, you know, making the best of that situation and the challenges logistically it provided. But it sounds like some of that uh, does continue, and, and I guess the online delivery of programming uh, provides even greater access. Is that fair? That you've seen evidence of that?
1: It absolutely does. Um, it you know it provides greater access. It, it real time as well. So you know you're you're a caregiver and you've got children at home. You're working a job and maybe you're caring for a parent. You know, your free time, we're likely not in person at, you know, 1130 at night or 130 in the morning. And and now there's access to those programs um, on demand as well um, for some of those. So um, it really has been about finding ways. I think, again, we're all doing it in our personal lives, but. Sometimes it, I like being in things real time, but sometimes when you can't be, at least you got the recording and you're able to see it later and maybe you don't get your questions real time answered, but you get that information. So absolutely, I think it's about finding what was, what were the good things of what we changed? You know, What do we want to say goodbye to and never do again? But what are those good things and how do you integrate it with what it used to be as well um, to come up with choice for people? Because I think... No matter what group of individuals we're talking about, staff, constituents, board members, donors, um, choice seems to be at the forefront today. I think we've all as humans always wanted choice, but at the forefront today, choice is paramount.
0: Yeah, love that. And I'm glad to lift up that as a leadership lesson. I think regardless of the organization in which our listeners are involved, uh, providing that choice is indeed something to think about and access. and and other related topics there. Of course, I'm also glad to lift up the association in general and the work you're doing, because I would almost guarantee everyone listening has been affected, sadly, by Alzheimer's. And so I wanna make sure that the show notes will indeed have uh, links to the resources you provide. But I wanna go back now to the big four, I'm calling them, Catherine, that you have got four topic areas for leaders trying to lead more effectively post-pandemic. Number one is one you just said, which is the hybrid work setting, and I would bet you'd agree that there's a tug of war going on right now in every sector. But let's start with nonprofit. Uh, those that have gotten comfortable with the hybrid nature of of the work environment, and those that, frankly, want to go back to everybody needs to be back in the office. So, talk about how you have approached this hybrid work setting.
1: I feel like I've approached it from every angle, and I still don't have the solution. So that disclaimer <laughs> uh, yeah. up front. You know, I, I look, there's in my opinion, there's perceive, there's perception and there's reality, but people's perceptions is their reality. So if I go back to January of 2020, I would say that my team had a very flexible uh, work environment. You know, you have a hair appointment. You need to let your dog out. Um, Look, they're working nights. They're working weekends. Um, They never had an eight to five in the office job to begin with. But then I think, you know, we all went home and everyone learned how to do their job from behind a computer in our at least in our setting. And now we're back to needing to engage community. And you can't do that behind a computer in an office and you can't do that behind a computer at your home effectively. So it's about getting back out there. And so. For us, I think my mistake in all of this was making it about, are you at work or are you in the office? No. Are you in the community? Are you engaging with the folks you need to be engaging to mobilize our community to end Alzheimer's, And whether that's programmatically, whether that's from a revenue standpoint. And so we've changed the conversation about where are you physically working in slippers at home or in real shoes at the office, but more about how are you getting out there. And out there might be a Zoom meeting. You know, I think about in some of my urban um, communities, we have our, our senior leaders in other industries who are helping us with, say, walk. They don't want to go commute through Charlotte for a lunchtime meeting. That's two hours out of their day, an hour of it traveling and an hour in the meeting. They're very open to Zoom because they've given us an hour and they go about their day. But there are many other things that People are wanting to have that cup of coffee. They're wanting those organic conversations that come where you learn about one another and form relationships. So it's really been about changing the conversation about office or home and saying, how are we engaging in the community?
0: Yeah, love the way you put that. And I think that's an important perspective to start in this conversation, as I know there are nonprofit leaders listening right now that are still wrestling with it. And I'm going to ask you, I guess, about kind of the, the rules, so to speak, that you've put for, but but I guess I would want to acknowledge that we both know there are some organizations that there are positions that simply require you have to be there in person. So that category of worker we're not trying to to kind of complicate. But for positions that there is some degree of discretion, how have you literally kind of mandated, if anything, Catherine? Do I have to be in the office a certain number of days a week, or how do you define the new rulebook? So
1: we started um, with everyone needed to be in office or I'm going to actually call it be out of their home, <laughs> be out of their home right. uh, two two days a week and and had some choice involved with that. Um, that was kind of earlier 2020, mid 2022. And um, I think people liked, again, the word choice. People liked the choice. It managed to work from a coverage standpoint that the days people chose even out throughout the week. Um, but again, I think a big piece of how you manage is results? And and are you meeting the end goals that you want to meet? And I can tell you coming to the end of 2022, you know, we fell a little short of where we wanted to be. And so that is kind of raising the next level of this conversation. And it's not about did people not do good work? It's that We're trying to be in a new world using the old way we worked and so that's really where this push in 2023 has come about about engaging a community and again for those roles that that is what makes sense, which is the vast majority of our staff roles and so really starting to look at calendars. Um, and looking and saying, okay, I'm looking at your calendar um, over the next couple of weeks, and I I don't really see anything external. Let's talk about that. Um, Again, whether that's an external meeting over Zoom, um, we're raising this up. We're changing our dialogues in one-on-one. So instead of just talking about the metric that we might be measuring, we're backing up and talking about what were your most exciting meetings last week? What was the meeting of the week? Well, It'd be embarrassing if you didn't have anything in that conversation to answer. So we're changing the questions um, to really get at what is that root thing. And we're being honest about it. I've had to be very vulnerable and say, I really got into wearing flip-flops, tennis shoes, and slippers as (laughs) as my sole shoe choice. And um, sometimes it takes getting back out. You know, I had an event in the evening uh, just last week and I loved it once I was there and it was it was invigorating and it was with a, a lot of our uh top fundraisers and donors and but I have to be honest when I was leaving the office to go to this evening event I thought I would so much rather be going home and putting on pajamas and watching <laughs> what I, you know what's on Netflix but when I got there I remembered this is what I was hired to do and I think we've got to have this intentionality around questions and scheduling until we all get back to the place that we get the energy and the boost from the doing it, which we've gotten out of that habit.
0: Yes, yes. And easy to do, uh, admittedly. I think we all would agree. Um, But I want to underline something you said, which I think is important, because at first, a lot of these hybrid work questions or situations were largely just a philosophic kind of gut instinct from the leader, right? You had to decide what you felt was appropriate, but you're now incorporating data. And I want to go back to that, Catherine, if I could. So you're looking now that we've had a couple years of post-pandemic, I suppose. Um, so it's things like, is it program delivery or is it external meetings, dollars raised? Are those the things you're looking at to help guide your hybrid work kind of decisions?
1: absolutely so on our our programmatic care and support side you know how many how many people have we reached um with our programs and services and um you know we 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 could work all year 24 hours a day never sleep and not reach everyone we need to reach so certainly the need is there and so we're we're looking at that how many people are we reaching and and how many of those are new people um we want to serve everybody as many times as they need to be served but are we reaching new constituents, unduplicated constituents, you know, dollars raised, um, you know, number of gifts, the standard metrics all of us would look at from a fundraising standpoint. Um, You know, we're also looking at media engagement and, and that concern and awareness piece as well.
0: Well, again, I'm glad you bring that up and I hope our listeners at least it's getting their wheels turning because I hear continued philosophic wrestling matches of, you know, we just need to have everybody back in the office because of the interaction in the hallway. And then you hear other people say, "Well, I didn't really interact with people in the hallway anyway, and I'm losing two hours in commute time each day, which now can be devoted to the organization. So I don't claim there's a perfect answer, but it seems to me you've brought data into your analysis, and I'm guessing you're having continuing conversations with your team.
1: Absolutely, and you know one of the biggest things is I had to look at why did I think something was because I'm laughing at all those kind of statements you just made. I'm like yes to all of them, and and there some of them are conflicting. I right, I'm, right. I'm anecdotally seeing when I'm in the office just that I'm less productive. Let's let's be candid. When I'm in the office, I get less done, or I think why am I here? My door is shut. I'm in meeting after meeting after meeting. What's the difference? But it's that I'm walking, you know, to the copier and I overhear something and I I add my two cents or vice versa. So that that organic piece. But you know what? That doesn't apply in some of my offices where I have one or two people. There isn't an office culture, if you will, with a small group that happens in my bigger office areas. But I I I had to say, why do I feel this way? And one of the things you talked about drive time. I was like, what is the magic that our office is opened 8:30 to 5:30? Two of my operational administrative staff, who who their job is to be physically in the office. Right now they're each at three days a week. Um, they both have longer commutes and they both were talking about it. And, you know, they understood that was their job. And let's be honest, they lived in the same places and that was their job before the pandemic, but things have changed and I thought, why do I care about 5 p.m.? If as long as we communicate to people what our office hours are, why couldn't we close the office at 3 30? And then they're not at least hitting traffic. I can't yes. change the distance between the two, <laughs> yes. but I can change the impact of what kind of traffic they're in because nobody wins um, in that. So, you know, we've we've made those kinds of tweaks, but I think it's it's asking people. Um, So we are about to make a shift that it's it's in community um, or or in office, which, again, I'm hoping that doesn't mean a lot more people in the office. They're just out in community. But that it is a conversation of I know this is going to cause some disruption in your life. What are you most concerned about? Individual conversations, because what I'm finding is what people think is going to be their barrier. For example, I really have I had one say I've really enjoyed being home when my child has gotten off the the school bus and being able to prepare their snack, hear about their day, get them started on their homework and then get back to work. And I said, okay. and they said, well, that won't work. And I said, why won't that work? So you don't schedule a community engagement at three thirty in the afternoon and you're home and you do that and then. Maybe you do those more administrative parts of your job, the catching up on emails, calendaring, writing, while your child is doing their homework, you schedule your community work or in-office work before that. And it eliminated that barrier. So having those conversations about here's where we're headed, what do you find? I know it's going to cause disruption. It's going to cause change. That's acknowledge it. What are you most concerned about? And nine times out of 10, I think it's the perception thing it's what someone's perception of what that means versus the reality of what it does and you can only accomplish that in a one-on-one conversation
0: thanks for sharing and you're right uh, and good for you for at least continuing these conversations often when we put these edicts uh, into place from up high uh, they can be worked out uh, right in the individual circumstances of our teammates And so I appreciate you sharing that and getting our listeners to think about maybe what's in place now and does it necessarily have to stay that way or what could be adapted in this post-pandemic environment. We'll talk in a bit about the implications of hiring in this environment, which adds another layer of complexity. But let me ask you about another constituent group, Catherine, that you deal a lot with, and that's your board's, boards, I guess, plural and uh, key volunteers. What's changed in that environment for you, and I guess both in managing the boards you have and board recruitment as well?
1: So um, I, I know some folks have a, a hyper-local board. Mine is not. It, it's it's across a half state. Um, so travel has always been, even pre-pandemic, you know, has has been a I wouldn't even say a barrier, but it, it's been a, a reality um, that somebody, some some of the folks on the board are driving two hours to get to a meeting, and so you know we we always had them scheduled far ahead, and um, I had mixed attendance, and we went into the pandemic, and all of a sudden I had a hundred percent participation from my board um, wow. because we were we were Zoom, and I was like, this is amazing, and so we brought our our whole full group together across the entire state um, in the middle, uh, actually late summer of twenty twenty two, and. I really thought the group would say they wanted to stay mostly virtual. And they said, Oh, no, this has been so great. This couple of hours um, in in strategy session, and we want to be in person. Well, you know, December came, we had our in person board meeting. And in the 48 hours before, 50% of my board kept asking if there was a call in number. And, you know, it's a case of we tried something and we ended up having a hybrid meeting, and it wasn't anybody's best engagement. And so we are looking at a whole new model. We're going to come together in person in the middle of the state one time a year. Everybody has it on their calendar. It's a multi-hour strategy kind of retreat session. And the rest of our meetings are going to be virtual because they're, if I have the right people on my board in those key leadership roles, they live very busy personal and professional lives. And that not having to commute or just the reality that Sometimes other people control your calendar. Um, I want their highest and best engagement. So we we are gonna go to the rest of those. We're doing both. We're but yeah, not at the right. same time. Um, that in person meeting won't have a virtual option because we really want everybody to be in person together for that deep conversation and strategy. Um, And then we're going to try some local mini meetings, Um, you know, my my group that's in the mountains of North Carolina. We're going to come together in their community and talk specifically about what's happening in that community. We'll bring kind of the Charlotte Metro group together. Same same exact conversation. So it's a little bit more work on my part. Um, but it's a deeper engagement in their local communities, which is really what they're there for, um, is they're looking out for the greater interest of the Alzheimer's Association and the work we do, but they're micro-focused on their own area.
0: I love that. Is there committee work as well, if I'm on your board, Catherine? And so what is my total annual engagement, I guess, at least in terms of meetings, look like? The-
1: that's actually what we've shifted. Instead of it being committee work by function, we're kind of going committee work by regional area. Um, and I'm able to engage those local, st- that's this new model of where we'll meet in person. So on, on an annum basis in meetings, it's it's three two hour meetings and one kind of three quarter day meeting um, in person. The other the other three uh, will be, two will be virtual and one will be in person. And then, you know, there's some independent study work in between on, on some of the projects they're working on.
0: Yeah, it's excellent. And of course I know you have a wonderful volunteer network I guess related to the walks and other events it has has volunteer recruitment and training changed as a result again of the pandemic?
1: It has. Um you know again I I think I know I'm personally looking at what I was involved with pre-pandemic and what I found value in during the 3 years of kind of taking a beat and and not being involved with so many things that as we emerge i'm being very selective well so is everyone else and so it's really understanding what was most meaningful again with those key leaders individual conversations we're calling the mission conversations you know in in the roles volunteer roles you've served with us what's been most meaningful how do you want to be engaged moving forward um really understanding what they're telling us in that discovery conversation to try to match them with something that would be the highest and best use of, of their interests and talents.
0: Let me go back to the board for a second. Uh, Catherine, your perspective on board recruitment, how does that work for you at the association? Uh, is that a, a committee led nominating process? And have you changed in terms of what you're looking for in terms of board leadership?
1: It is a a committee. Uh, in a perfect world, it's committee led um, and, and nominated. I, I will say that I still feel like I probably carry a, a large bit of the work on that um, so I'm very intentional with blocking time in my calendar to reach out to new people about leadership opportunities I'm not necessarily specific I am looking for board members but I'm also looking for these kind of executive leadership uh, leaders of our various walks 17 walks across the state as well and, and those are those same types of individuals. And really then having a conversation with the folks that, that get back with me and then connecting them with the board as well to, you know, vet and have those conversations, board member to potential board member. Um, I'm finding it harder uh, to recruit individuals because people are being more selective with their time. They don't want to get back into the being over committed on a right. volunteer basis. Um, I think the part. know that's fortunate for us in recruitment but unfortunate for us from a health crisis standpoint is exactly the point you made earlier lots more people are being impacted by this disease and so um someone who's been on this journey feels deeply committed to helping someone else not be on this journey and so i there is a lot of mission connection for folks that that i appreciate is a is a benefit for us in recruiting Um, strong leaders in place, but what I'm looking for hasn't changed in the sense of folks that are committed to the mission and that during the time they are on our board, you know, this is one of their top three philanthropic um, initiatives and and that they're willing to make connections with others. Um, I'm just far more intentional about it, I think, now than I used to be.
0: Yeah, uh, well put. And this ties nicely to, well, your first discussion around the kind of hybrid work environment. You've talked about board engagement and the changes and, and or things that remain constant there. But let me tie your third key pillar, and that is we talked about how you've managed your team and and the differing approaches to kind of work in uh, the setting in which we work. Uh, let's talk about hiring, Catherine. What are you seeing in the talent pool when you're looking to add members to your team? And how has the hybrid environment affected those recruiting conversations
1: this has probably been the biggest thing i've seen change over the last two years and um i, th- I think one how we how we hire is different i mean i 50 percent of my regional staff were hired during the pandemic you know, we hadn't even laid eyes on a, a human being in real life um for a year to two years so you know, I'm far less married to the concept of needing to sit across from somebody eyeball to eyeball for an interview like I used to be pre, pre-pandemic. pre You can be very effective um, in doing a lot of that through through technology. But I am not seeing the same. Um, you post a position and you the usual suspects, if you will, apply for it and you hire someone who's done that exact job before and, you know, their success in another voluntary health organization leading a walk, as an example, translates to that um, with us. I don't see that anymore. And I used to see almost that exclusively and had to have two or three candidates within a week and had a really difficult time making a choice. And I think now we're having to and I don't think this is a bad thing. We're We're having to look at people's backgrounds and say, where are transferable skills? who has the ability to mobilize a community, whether that's on the programmatic side, whether that's on the revenue side and think more creatively about people's experiences and how those could translate to success. I, I have two examples um, from this past uh, year. They've been on board a little over a year now. Um, neither had experience in running a walk. One was in sales and um it felt like it was a good fit and the other actually had not been in sales but i was interviewed for another position for opera an operational position i ultimately didn't hire her for that but i had been so impressed with her in our interview that when i had this open walk position i called her and said i know you really want to work for the association and i don't think you'd apply for this job because you don't think you're qualified for it and i'd like to talk with you about how you are and then see how you feel about it um That's not a conversation I would have had three years ago. And I will tell you, she was my most effective walk manager this past year. So I think we have to be creative, um, be open to non-traditional candidates. I was a non-traditional candidate when I entered 20 plus years ago into a fundraising position. Um, But someone saw the passion for the organization and skill sets that could transfer. That's what I think we've got to be doing more of.
0: Such a great perspective and point you're making, and I wonder from a tactical perspective, if someone's listening, do we need to soften the requirements within our job postings, our job descriptions? For example, you and I both know the fundraising world. So many of the job descriptions say, you know, we're only looking for candidates who have had, you know, proven fundraising experience of five to seven years or something like that. So are you saying that you're kind of open to... Uh, for lack of a better term softening the requirements to allow you to look at maybe a non-traditional candidate.
1: I love having some of those requirements in there but also putting in language such as um or equivalent relevant experience um, you know in in my former world pre-nonprofit I I was a I was a headhunter and I was always impressed with the folks who I was fairly convinced they'd never read the job description based on their actual resume, not matching really what we were looking for. But <laughs> right. if someone could artfully sell to me, I know I'm not on paper the candidate, if you just look at my resume, but I'd like to tell you how I can do this job. I got to tell you, I always thought well, you're interesting. I I, I might want to talk to you. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yes, we need to be without compromising what we're looking for and recognizing that there are people with the exact experience we want, who are the right candidates for these jobs, too. Um, but when we don't have those or there's just that person that there's there's something about them that you think I want them on my team. Um, I, I think trust your gut in that and and try to make that happen if you can.
0: Such a good point. I mean, there are requisite skills and experience that jobs require. But I wonder if if, if instead of using language that says required, maybe it's preferred, right? Maybe that would give an opening, right? That, uh, yes, this is what we're looking for, but you can perhaps make a case for the transferability of your skills or experience.
1: I've mostly seen that in job descriptions around the educational requirements that, you know, X degree is preferred, but, you know, or comparable experience. And, And I like adding that in a little bit more around, particularly we're talking about fundraising, you know, the three to five years or five plus years, um, you know, if that is something you can be flexible on with other, you know, relevant experience that translates, I think if you can put some language in there that gives that creative person a chance to say, "Hey, maybe they'd be willing to talk to me." Um, you can get some exciting hires that way.
0: That's yeah, such a good point. It, are you running into any any, uh, for lack of a better term, verbal wrestling matches with candidates who simply want a degree of uh, virtual work? that you cannot accommodate or is is that becoming uh, a, a hotter topic in discussions with candidates that you're hiring?
1: It is. And I and I would say I'm seeing the, the pendulum start to swing back. If you'd asked me that question three months ago, I would have said I, I actually was hesitant on pushing this concept of being in community or in office uh, because I really thought it would lead to a mass exodus and not being able to recruit talent. I am starting oh. to see that swing a little bit. Because it really isn't about being in the office for the sake of being in the office. It's about getting out and meeting with people yes, again. Yes. And and so, you know, you want to have a day at home because you've been traveling and you need to do laundry in between calls. Yeah, no problem. So I, I think some of it is when people say, I want to be virtual or I want a hybrid, let's really talk about what does that mean to you? Because I think we all are using that word and defining it 700 different ways and if you can get to the what are the expectations, then someone can truly decide not based on a word.
0: Yeah, outstanding. And that, again, as you have done in each case of these topics, break it down and don't make a generalization or a too rapid a response without really understanding what's behind these issues. And it leads to our fourth issue or, or pillar of your advice. We've talked about. Uh, managing your team. We've talked about managing your board. We've talked about the recruitment issues or implications of the pandemic. Let's talk fundraising, an area you and I both have had our ups and downs in the roles of uh, of fundraisers. Uh, how has fundraising been impacted for you and the association? And have there been changes, if you will, as a result?
1: So you from a brass tax standpoint, yes, and particularly in the, the first 12 months of the pandemic, you know, we saw a decline in event revenue because we couldn't have the same events. And as creative as we were, there was still a financial, you know, decline there. However, um, we saw increases in our uh, major, major donor, uh, our largest gifts, um, our planned giving. Um, and so we saw some shifts there. The thing I would say is the reason I think we saw the increase with our major gifts efforts is that we had had great communication with those folks before. And we called and explained where we were and what the situation was and we asked them to help. And they were happy where they were able to do that. And I think the, the lesson in that um became communicate, communicate, communicate. Again, knew it was important pre-pandemic. It led to really being able to keep us in a, in a good situation in the early days of the pandemic and i think making sure we continue to do that that we're vulnerable we talk about where our challenges are and you know ask what's the old the old verbiage of um ask for money get advice ask for advice <laughs> get money right. um i i do think with a lot of these folks who've been long-time partners and um and or you know some of our biggest donors when we're talking to them about some of these challenges that you and I are talking about staffing hiring, how do we serve constituents in this new environment, getting their perspectives, they want to be a part of the solution, not just a writer of a check. So I I think making sure that we're sharing with them what's going well, Um, you know, we in the world of the Alzheimer's Association have some really excitement things happening on the treatment front um, over the past couple months and in in the first part of 2023 as well. using those types of opportunities to engage and say, because of you, um, this is happening, that continues to be effective, but just finding ways to communicate.
0: Yeah, so well put. And I, I was going to ask you, and you may have touched on this, but it did, did your donors respond as a result of the pandemic, especially knowing, I'm guessing, the, the majority of your donors understood the the power of the walks and these events and the money you raised there, was there a positive reaction as a result of that
1: absolutely and, and i would say compared to other events i think we weathered well um with that but absolutely uh, particularly those donors that gave in other ways understood that there was some natural shrinkage um, when you don't physically have an event uh, it is it is difficult to make it feel as wonderful and special no matter how hard you try uh, doing it virtually um, and they very much uh, stepped up and we had some of our strongest fundraising actually ever
0: yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess final question on the fundraising front is, in light of economic conditions, uh, perhaps declining, what's the reaction you're sensing now or getting now from your donor base?
1: Again, fortunate timing for us with uh, these exciting breakthroughs that are happening with um what we hope uh, in very rec- couple of days from now maybe or weeks fda approval of a treatment and then coverage for that treatment there's excitement uh, on the front of the work that we're doing as as well as as a sense of urgency that we've not had before and you know while folks are having to make choices about where to spend their charitable dollars we we do still see that connection with us but again it's it's about constant communication and making sure that we're making the case um for for both the need, uh, the case for support, and then also really stewarding um, those donors. I I think relationships, relationships, relationships has been the the key part of of going forward successfully.
0: Well, and that's wonderful advice and perhaps a good summary piece of advice. Uh, You know, I was going to ask you this. And so like you did in the previous episode, you had lots of leadership lessons. This was a wonderful conversation about some practical and tactical things nonprofit leaders can do to kind of reimagine their organization and the leadership, even in times of change. But I know you, like me, continue to have coffee and conversation with people thinking about nonprofit leadership. Has your advice changed in any way when you sit with someone who says, hey, Catherine, I'm thinking about getting involved in nonprofit leadership? What do you say?
1: You know I I don't know that my advice has changed. I I I don't care what role that someone was a leader in this past 3 years. It, it it was hard work. I I don't care what sector it was in. And and I think that's not just it didn't become about the the business of whatever you're trying to do. It became about were your people okay? I mean it it we all went home, you know, I feel like we ran out of a building on March 12th to to set up and try to do work and and so were my people okay? Were their families okay? And um, you know, on the plus side, you asked about silver linings. I I got to know about my team's dogs and children. I mean, I saw them often in, in, in the background on calls. And um, I think in nonprofit, the piece I would say is, I, I think the work that we do, and in my case, the families that we, we go through this with, many of whom, you know, managing Alzheimer's is not easy in a perfect world, in a pandemic world, it was a thousand times harder. And um, to get to go on this journey, as a, a leader of a nonprofit, it, it's one of the most rewarding things. Um, I, I've I've never had a regret. So so my my encouragement for people to consider a, a career in nonprofit leadership hasn't changed. But my my big piece of advice probably has, and that is just about the time you think you have it figured out, something is going to change. Um <laughs> and if if it's not coming up on you, um, you should be thinking about what it is, because that piece of constant evolution has not. Ever been clearer to me than it's been in the last three years.
0: So well put. Adaptability will remain a key characteristic of successful leaders. I'm sure you would agree. And you have been a great uh, example of just that. Uh, Delighted to reconnect with you on this podcast, Catherine. Thanks for the advice on all four of those key pillars. And I hope our listeners will consider how they're managing their team and are they reconsidering some of those aspects their board uh their hiring practices and of course their relationship with their donors um if I can ask again for a parting gift and I can't remember Catherine what book you recommended then I'm betting you might have another book that our listeners might enjoy is there one you might recommend now
1: I'm laughing. I recommended several the last time and and I thought Patton's going to ask me this question. I'm going to have to confess that I haven't been as active of a reader of books (laughs) as I should have been during this pandemic. But what I would say is I have been reading a lot of uh, blogs and many articles on what other business leaders are doing and not just in the nonprofit sector. Um, I I was actually reading a piece about faith communities recently and, and how um, members of faith communities have have viewed it differently. and I thought, oh my goodness, that resonates so much with what we're seeing in our constituent base. So um really been looking at a lot about this kind of i'm I'm not searching for it as return to office, but <laughs> on this conversation of you know choice that people have and um how to help manage that. I, I've just been reading lots of little pieces and trying to figure out okay, what what nuggets do I want to extract from that?
0: Yeah, love that kind of a topical research assignment right that you're finding ways to cross pollinate from other sectors and i think that in alone is a good research method for nonprofit leaders to consider
1: well and i have to be honest Patton. the the last professional development book i read was yours and actually uh bought a copy for everyone in my region and it has resonated <laughs> with all of them so not a, just a plug for your book but but in all honesty that is the last professional development book i read I, I,
0: i'm honored and maybe we'll have to feature that book in this uh, episode if uh, you're willing to add that to the wonderful resources that we'll include in the show notes for this episode. Absolutely. And 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 by the way, as this episode's release, it sounds like there might be good news um, on the Alzheimer's front in the research front. But where would you like our listeners to go to learn more about you and the great work of the association?
1: Absolutely. Uh, if you go to alz.org. Um, If you're in North Carolina, slash North Carolina, otherwise, if you go to ALZ.org, you can enter in your local uh, zip code and be directed to local chapter resources.
0: Fantastic. Happy to link all of that up. And Catherine, once again, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Catherine as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you not just in your future leadership journey in the nonprofit sector, but perhaps help you rethink some of your management of your current role right now. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Catherine, the Alzheimer's Association in general, and specifically the work she's doing across North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. As always, I would be grateful if you'd share this episode with just one other person on the nonprofit path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you will see the follow button, which will allow you to not miss any of these episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this one, you might want to click on the episodes button at the top of that same page, and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes. Now, Catherine has two amongst that list, as well as searching by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. Keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.